0: The Ether. This is episode five, and I'm Tim Brick, and still your host. This week, we're going to be joined by uh, a name that will be very familiar to anyone that studies American history. We're going to be joined by Andrew Johnson, although this one obviously is still alive and has never been impeached for anything. So, not the same Andrew Johnson. This one is a film and TV composer in Los Angeles who, at the age of 15, won the Iowa State Fair piano competition with his own arrangement of chopsticks. And by the way, that wasn't a a age-limited uh, competition. So at that point, Andy's competing against 20, 30, 40, 50, 60-year-olds. Uh, from there, emboldened by that win at the Iowa State Fair, Andy took off and headed east to Yale University, where he studied music composition and took film classes. And if you've got an interest in scoring films, you graduate college, what do you do? You grab your girlfriend, you head west to L.A., And that's exactly what Andy did. And when he got there, he wound up getting a job at Remote Control, which is Hans Zimmer's composing studio. And for anyone that doesn't know, Hans Zimmer is one of the most prolific and sought-after music composers in the world. And he's got some Academy Awards to prove how much Hollywood cares for him. So from there, uh, Andy struck out on his own and is currently uh, doing freelance scores uh, for films, TV shows, and doing commercials as well. And Andy's had over 8,000 television episodes license his music. Not only that, Andy's also an incredible performer, Uh, likes to play out uh, piano, particularly when he gets the chance. Uh, Great producer, great engineer, great arranger. Uh, Just great, great, great at everything, and a great person. So I'm looking really forward to talking to him. And we'll be back in a moment with Andrew Johnson. (laughs) ¶¶ Andy, welcome to Out of the Ether. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And may I call you Andy? Is that acceptable?
1: I I insist.
0: (laughs) Good. Um, So I like to make my guests feel comfortable, obviously. So we'll start off with a a softball question here for you, something real easy just to kind of ease you into this podcast, uh, this interview. So you're in Hollywood. You're working in film and TV with all the big shots of the world. So who's the biggest asshole you've had to work with so far?
1: Who? Um, well, d- indirectly, it would be uh, a showrunner named Ryan Murphy, who he, d- he did like Glee, American Horror Story, a lot of other big shows. But um, I say indirectly because it was the guy that I was working for had to deal with him for the most part. Okay, But he was the biggest diva in every sense of the word that you would ever meet to the point where the best story I have was uh, when I started working on Glee, which was at the time, one of maybe the number one show in America ratings-wise. Ryan Murphy was the head of it. And he got in such a fight about editing one or two particular scenes that he refused to do the notes. And it was the standoff that he just said, I'm not doing it. And they said, well, then we're not airing it. And he goes, well, I'm not doing it. And this just went <laughs> back and forth. And the problem was that it premiered the night of the Super Bowl because they wanted big ratings. Sure. And it was on Fox, so it came right after the Super Bowl. So they basically said, we're going to pull the episode that we've been promoing all week. And he goes, I don't care. I'm not doing it. And so at the last minute, the network caved. I don't even know what the fight was, but they, he didn't have to make any changes However, it was so late that they hadn't sent it to the network, so they had to pull the emergency broadcast switch, at least <laughs> this is what I'm told, yeah. and just hope that it worked and play the episode live from the computer that they had it on. And it did work, and I believe I, was, I read on Wikipedia later that it had like 69 million viewers or something, but it was an episode that almost didn't happen because of some nitpicky fight that is so minuscule, I don't even know what it was about. Um, so he would be the actual, uh, answer. (laughs) Okay. But personally, it would be John legend who I worked with at the democratic national convention in 2008. And I was just like a music intern. And he was the, like the, he was one of the talent guys, but if the rehearsals, like he was, we were just rubbing each other the wrong way. I had nothing to do with anything officially. I was like setting up gear and, but I could spend 20 minutes telling you stories, um, which we don't need to get into. But he's always my go-to of just like, you don't need to be like that. Um, so those would be my answers. Okay. And
0: well, I have to tell you, John Legend to me is sh- a shocking answer because that's not his persona. His public persona It's something completely different. He's a he's a coach in The Voice this up uh, this season. And uh, Michelle got me back into watching The Voice. And actually, we were just watching uh, Last Night or the night before, and I'm like, oh, my God, I really love John Legend. That's the guy I would pick. But now hearing that, I think I'd go with Blake. I'd <laughs> probably have more in common with him. It's interesting you said you are working at the Democratic National Convention because I was looking through the list of shows that you've worked on, which is extensive. I don't, it seems like there's 100 plus. Um, and I saw Trevor Noah and uh, I saw Bill Maher on there. So I guess I was wondering, is that intentional? In other words, if Fox News called you up and said, hey, we'd really like you to do some background music for us, do you, do you not care who the client is, or do you intentionally choose certain people over others?
1: <laughs> well, so Fox does use my music, but I've never written it for them, and I don't, <laughs> I think I took that all off my website. Um, but the, so the, the difference is Daily Show, I actually wrote music for them. Okay. Bill Maher just used something that I wrote and I didn't know about it until like a year later. Um, so he licensed something that I wrote for a different project.
0: Okay.
1: And like they don't have to ask me for, for permission. They just like pay the licensing fee. You get royalties after the fact. Not very much, but you get something. And so that's what Fox News also has done. So all of those hosts have also used my stuff but I have no say over that. It's just if I decide to put music on a certain platform and it gets used then that's I don't get to get to control who does it. Right. Whereas the Daily Show they did specifically ask for a style and they wanted me to spoof March Madness and make it feel like a certain and that's the, their video was um like Trump's best words and it's this <laughs> recurring thing. Okay. And the, I'm, I wrote the music for that. So it's like, whenever they p- tweet that out, if you just listen, it's meant to be a March madness spoof. And that's what they asked for.
0: So when you write music for a piece like that, do they send you the video and then you write to it, or they just give you a general um, overview of what they're looking for. And then you just come to your own conclusions, what it should feel like or sound like.
1: So if it's, if there's enough time, then you you always score it to picture, but something like The Daily Show is usually the answer. There was no. Okay. They come up with an idea like at ten in the morning, and they're like, "Wouldn't this be funny?" <laughs> and so you don't know what you're doing, and then yeah. they ask somebody who asks me, and the, and it's just like, "Can you get us something in two hours?" And I like that particular project. I was like eating alone at Subway sandwich. I was like sitting there like on Twitter eating a Subway sandwich I get an email. It's like, could you write something that sounds like March madness by like 2 PM? And I was like, sure. Um, (laughs) I didn't know if I could, but you, you never say no. (laughs) And so I just like remember eating really quickly and like slurping down my diet Coke and running home and writing it. and, And now I hear it all the time.
0: So I would imagine you have a pretty extensive library by, by now. So when you get a request like that and it's kind of a ridiculous timeframe, do you, and of course you say yes, but do sometimes you think, well, my, my fallback is I can pull something out of my library. Um,
1: I think legally it does always have to be something new because anything that I, unless it gets rejected by the client, I have sold it. And so it, okay. I don't usually own it. So And it's never quite right. Like, I've tried that many times where something that does get rejected, I'll say, oh, you know what? I'm going to remember this for the next time I get (laughs) a request. And it inevitably, like, I I spend two hours tweaking it, and I send it, and then I'm like, I think they're going to give me notes on this part of it because I didn't really write it for that. And then they do, and I rewrite it. And next thing I know, I've spent six hours writing something that still doesn't work. And I should have just written it from scratch in two. Yeah. Um, so I, anyway, I've learned not to do that because it's tempting, but it, it never works out. There are like three exceptions to that in my life, but probably 500 examples of times where I thought that I was being clever and it came back to bite me.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I've done the same thing Um, where I take pieces of music. Cause I, if you look at my DA and on different hard drives, I have, I have hundreds of, incomplete songs or song ideas, pieces, whatever. Um, And I can't tell you how many times I'm like, all right, I need to go through these archives here and I'm going to find something. I'm going to complete it. And I I spend like days screwing around with it. There's a reason why it's in there. (laughs) I couldn't figure out how to complete it the first time. And I think, Oh, screw it. Let's just start from scratch. And then, you know, something comes out much quicker much, much less painful. But what, um, now let's, let's go back a ways. Do you remember your first because I, I do for me, but um when you first thought, "Wow, I think I want to play an instrument." what that moment was or what that inspiration was?
1: um I have a few of them I growing up, I always liked the piano. I just remember always thinking it was cool and being interested in it, and then now no one mo- else in
0: your family plays an instrument though, right so I mean, it's not like you were surrounded with it
1: yeah that that's right, and so then my mom inherited uh in old upright like an old barroom upright lime grain piano i forget when but it was so out of tune that it was basically unplayable and so we had it for a few years and then i have two memories one of them was being in going to fifth grade and in the middle of music class they stopped it and they said this kid whose name I remember, I remember everything about this. He's going to play Elise," which is that famous, you know, and I don't know if he actually played it well, but in my mind, I'd never heard anything (laughs) is incredible. And I didn't really know this guy that well, but I basically harassed him so much to give me the sheet music so I could photocopy it and give it back to him. And I I couldn't read a note of music. Right. Um, And then I got my mom to buy me, this like really cheap music score program okay where it's for you to notate your, if you're a composer, but I did the opposite. I entered Beethoven's score into it so I could watch the little like colors on the keyboard. Uh-huh. And I basically learned the beginning of it. And that's when my mom said, do you want to learn to play? And I did. And, and that was basically it. Like within two years I was playing everything that I play now. Uh, but I was just obsessed. Perhaps in an unhealthy way, but I was obsessed. <laughs> so yes, I vividly remember the fear release moment. And I have a few others along the way, but that was really, I would say, the defining one.
0: So was it always piano for you? Because most people, especially at that age, are more I want to play guitar if they want to do something.
1: I thought guitar was cool and I actually did play a little bit, but but very poorly. Like I would I played you know, all the basic chords and I wasn't good at bar chords. Right. So I would avoid the key of F um, (laughs) and things like that. But it somehow it was just always piano and organ and just anything with keys. I just, I liked the range and the register. Um, And so, yeah, I, I never had that burning desire for guitar or for any other instrument, but I definitely had it with piano to just an obsessive degree.
0: Well, I started playing piano when I was probably 12 or 13, um, but but there's a difference between like for you going, wow, this is really cool. I want to learn how to do this. And for me at that point, I wanted to be a bass player. I, I did not want to play piano. My parents would freeze to buy me a bass, but they're like, you have to learn how to play piano. Um, so I begrudgingly said, okay, and I think I took lessons for like six or seven months. And if I could go back and do it over, I would have taken that more serious because that would have served me well um you always got time to learn another instrument and i still would have played bass but um one of the things i like about piano and it's the same thing I like with slap bass um it but with piano it, to me it's not only melodic but it's percussive as well you know uh well literally it's percussive i mean you're banging down the strings um completely different than stringed instruments which i play um and i enjoy that and now at this point in my life like i listen to you play at times and i'm like god i wish i could do that you know uh, it's really cool. It just sounds so free and so flowing and it's just so beautiful um, and everything that you can do on it. So as far as uh, playing goes, I know, and obviously, you're a composer, arranger, um, songwriter, uh, you score, uh, but you also play live. Do you have any particular performances that jump out as like just horrendous experiences playing live?
1: <laughs> yeah, I got probably, well, definitely one piano one that I remember is it stands out because it was sort of the perfect storm of perhaps hubris and also bad luck. Okay. And what I mean is where I used to, to the piano school that I was at at Drake, which is a college in Des Moines, that the big thing was to be the last person at like the yearly recital, because that meant you were like the showstopper that was bringing down the house and no one could follow you. Sure, So it was, this big deal that I, I really wanted to do that. And in order to do that, I had to play these huge Franz Liszt, epic, virtuosic piano pieces. And so I did that a couple times. And then one year I was, my piano teacher wanted me to learn this really simple Bach partita which is just like, you know, one note at a time. And it's, it's pretty simple. And he's like, you're, you're still gonna end the program, but, but this is what you should learn. And I remember thinking, God, this is gonna be embarrassing. Cause I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna play this really like like nothing that would like amaze you in front of your peers and your other pianists, Right. Um, and so I was thinking that the worst case scenario would be that I would play it really, really well. but just no one would be that impressed. Yeah. Well, that's not what happened. Uh, (laughs) Because for reasons that I still don't quite remember, I decided on that day, instead of my normal suit, I was going to wear this nice sweater, but I'd never played piano in it before. I don't know what possessed me. So everyone else plays, and I go up to play this relatively simple Bach piece. And within five seconds of starting it, I realized I had a huge problem because the shoulder, the arms were really baggy and the piece required me to cross my hands. That's the whole point. (laughs) So it's, it's all over and under and that's the point of the piece. And every time I did it, my hand kept catching the sweater. And not only did I not play it well, (laughs) I played it so bad that like nobody would even like make eye contact with me (laughs) when the piece was done. And I like walked down the aisle And I got done, and my mom was always the one person that just like, no matter what happened, thought it was great. And I remember in that moment, I was just like, it was the sweater. It was the sweater. She's like, yeah, I was wondering what happened. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, that was one of the most mortifying moments. Because not only did I, did everyone build up the anticipation of like, well, I mean, he must be good. Then I played an incredibly simple piece, and I played it awful. Um, So I remember that one well. From a composing standpoint, I have another one in which I was accepted to this film scoring workshop where the culmination of it was the New York Philharmonic would play, the orchestra would play your piece live. And it was a two minute piece. They're obviously busy. So they they played it through like one time and they recorded it professionally. And that was it. I had mocked it up with all of my samples and it just sounded epic and cinematic and it was incredible. But what I didn't realize is that live players were not going to be able to handle 16th notes at 130 beats a minute for the first (laughs) time ever and not have it sound like a mess. Right. And I decided to conduct myself. And that was another of those so mortifying. I I mean, it just, it was awful and it was all my fault because I didn't know how to conduct. I didn't know what I was writing To where, like, it got done and, again, like, no one would, like, make eye contact because they were so embarrassed for me. (laughs) And I can honestly tell you that the point of this workshop was to get the recording. Honest to God, I've never listened to it. I don't even – I don't think I saved it. It was just the (laughs) worst experience of my life. Um, But I learned it's better to write simple music that will be played well than to write really complicated music to try and impress people. Right that gets played so poorly that no one is impressed
0: well i think that's absolutely correct and it's funny as i'm listening to you and i'm hearing your experiences my background in music is is rock bands for the most part uh and doing rock shows and it was funny because i'm listening to you and i'm like wow that's really impressive you know the guy's playing bach he's playing list and he's he's conducting an orchestra you know my, my bad experiences are like you know a guitar player getting so drunk he falls over into my amp, you know. <laughs> Completely different types of experiences, but in the end still mortifying, you know, when it happens to you. Question for you. I, obviously you're a musician and composer. Do you write lyrics as well?
1: No, I've I've, I tried, but I, I just can't do it. Like, they're just kind of bad and they're not interesting. Um, which is weird because I enjoy writing right. and I love reading and I, I respect lyrics, but I'm just not very good at it. So... Uh, I don't.
0: Well, see, I, f- I find that really interesting. My my guess is you set too high a bar for yourself. And the only reason I say that, um, and I, I'm going to get into this in a little bit when we, when we start talking about some of the pieces you sent me over we're going to listen to, but... Um, you have the most clever song names I've ever ever read in my life. I love when you send me things, <laughs> and I'll read. When they come over, I'm, I'm sitting there reading the track names, and I just start laughing out loud before I even listen to them. But it makes me really want to listen to them. I'm like, wow, that's really clever. Um, and a lot of puns. So I, I, I guess I'm shocked by that because in my mind, I'm like, this guy is really creative. I know you're very intelligent. And he's got a great sense of humor. He'd be a wonderful lyricist. But I, I've never heard anything you've done with lyrics. That's why I asked. So obviously not, but uh, I think you'd be brilliant at it. Speaking of writing, though, I do know um, there was a piece, not a piece, I guess, a, was it become a movie? College musical that I think you co wrote, acted in, produced, and scored. Is that correct?
1: Uh Yeah. Well, uh, yep. Yeah, it's yeah, all true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, is, is did it get released? Is that something people can watch or?
1: It it did it, so. Um, it was financed by Disney Studios, and it's the first movie that was ever live streamed on Google. But it wasn't very good, and so that's why I don't talk about it much, um, and why we've made it as hard to find as possible. <laughs> <laughs> it it was uh, born out of some uh, YouTube videos that my uh, that a roommate of mine and I were doing at the time. That somebody came along and said, "If we finance you." do you think you could make a whole movie out of this? And the answer turned out to be like, not really. Um, (laughs) Yeah. We made a script. I, we produced a film. um, You know, it, it, looked professional. We had helicopter shots and drone shots back, back way before that was a thing. But the problem was like the story was just kind of juvenile and it was really just a series of it was a musical so it was a series of clever and funny songs that were just kind of strewn together to form a plot and it just didn't have any stand. and we kind of knew that like by the time we saw the first cut we knew we were screwed um and that just like the conflicts were a little contrived because we wanted to get into the song right and then the resolution was like a little too easy because we had another funny we're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did a 360 camera move with this song? And then he's on a tire swing and he does a a solo. That was our, our mindset was very viral video based, which is great for a four minute video, but it's not great for a 90 minute film. Right. So, yeah, I, I co-wrote the script. I acted in it. I produced the film, scored it. This was back when high school musical was all the rage. Yeah. So we were college musical, and the idea was it was just sort of a raunchy... The, in fact, the first song is this very meek y- young male who realizes he wants to... The song was, I Want to Bone My TA. <laughs> and, but we thought, like, we, we treat it, like, really serious. And so it's, you know, he's in this world where he can stand on the desk and the camera's flying through the classroom and... It's just visually stunning, and you you don't act like any of it's a joke. Okay. But again, the idea was like, th- that's really funny for four minutes, but it's then you're like, how do we get a conflict out of it? Like, then you need to get a song. And so, yes, I enjoyed the whole process, but it, it did not result in anything groundbreaking.
0: So it sounds like it's high school musical after dark yeah. kind of version. Okay. You grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. You went to school, uh, college anyway, at Yale. How do you go from Des Moines to Yale? Was it for their music program specifically or? Uh, I,
1: it was a couple things. I was recruited as a runner and that it was like a good fit because I wasn't a fast enough collegiate runner to make it on a really good team, but it was a kind of a sweet spot between I was good enough to score in the Ivy league. Okay. Um, but then you also have to have like strong enough academic credentials to be admitted. And the really good athletes don't have the academics and the total straight nerds usually can't, can't run quite as fast. So are
0: you calling yourself a total straight nerd? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I, I, I fit a nice balance between the two where yeah. I was just fast enough and just nerdy enough. Um, so then I went in and was actually a film studies major when I began because I was directing films, and that was my thing. And it wasn't until my junior year that I became a music major. And I I just did that because the film studies major at Yale is not really geared around production. It's, it's, It's critical analysis. So we were watching lots of 1940s German expressionist films and talking about the metaphors and the symbolism and the zeitgeist and what that represented. But I wanted to go out and, like, make a cool movie. Right. And you could do that, but that had nothing to do with your classes. Uh, So I decided I wanted my classes to be music and composition. So I switched to that and continued making films for several more years, including College Musical, which we just discussed. Uh, But that was the last major project I've worked on because I learned my lesson.
0: Now, is that um, the... The filmmaking, which I didn't know that that that's w- what you initially were doing at, at Yale, or that was the program we were in, um, is is that what feeds into? Because you have a series of YouTube videos, uh, which I believe you're around 20 million views at this point, which is I, to me is impressive and very substantial. Were those just um, fun little projects to do on the side, or was that part of a larger project? Because they, I know a lot of them uh, involve roommates of yours, and it seems like kind of the same cast of characters comes in and out of them. So I didn't know if that tied into a larger project you were doing, or is that just part of your love of film and music and trying to bring the two together?
1: No, that the, none of the, I didn't create any of those videos that that was the same group of guys that I made that movie with that I was discussing. And, uh, I was just had mentioned to them that I enjoyed arranging popular pieces in a way that would like impress a crowd. Okay. And so, I think in your intro, you mentioned the Iowa State Fair piano competition. Yeah. Which in and of itself is obviously not a huge deal. But I, I cared because I had, had watched people play at that. And I, I thought it was really cool. And it's like the, it was li- televised live. And yeah. there would be this huge auditorium of people listening. And I remember just thinking the pieces that I love aren't necessarily the ones that win and the pieces i loved were just the really famous ones that like i could hum it to you right now and you'd probably know it and i realized there was this huge distinction between the the best players and the best performers sure and so i just thought i wonder if i could win competitions by not trying to play some obscure edvard grieg piece but what if I just do like chopsticks and it ends with Jerry Lee Lewis and I throw back the piano bench and I play with my foot. Yeah. Um, and that's what I did at, at the Iowa State Fair and the whole crowd was clapping and going crazy. And I don't know if I was the best piano player that day, but it didn't matter. It's like you clearly, it was like that gladiator movie, like win the crowd and you will win yes. your Iowa State Fair <laughs> piano competition. Um,
0: and you get your, so, your stick of butter and your pound of pork. Yeah.
1: I, so th- that basically became my goal for the next several years is like, can I do that with the happy birthday song? Can I do that with super Mario brothers? Can I do it with anything where you may not think, you know, the theme, but then I go, but, um, bum, 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 And everyone kind of goes, Oh, I've heard this somewhere. And then can you turn that into a Lady Gaga song and then just Mm -hmm. do something cool with it? So those piano videos that you're referring to were born out of that. And my roommate just saying, I think if we just record you doing this, people will watch it. And he was right. Yeah, the last one was Zelda, which Nintendo paid us to do. And they just said in, in anticipation of our new video game, can you play your favorite Zelda themes and I had to the only caveat was that I had to dress as Link from Legend of Zelda while I played it.
0: I I did watch the video today. I was <laughs> going to ask you about the outfit.
1: <laughs> so, that was in the contract. Um uh well, or or I think we just said that we would do it, but the expectation was that with the, that would be done.
0: I'm I'm glad to hear you were contractually obligated. I was a little nervous about interviewing <laughs> you after seeing that video. So, okay. Uh
1: but yeah, there's nothing more to those. And I have a Facebook page that I've never posted to that every 3 weeks i tell my wife i'm finally going to record my piano and i'm just going to post random stuff and i've been saying that for 5 years so um i need to do that cuz i i do enjoy it
0: well if somebody wants to go watch those videos is it what are, what do they uh search for on youtube
1: um andrew johnson piano
0: and that concludes part 1 of my interview with andrew johnson part 2 andy talks a little bit more about uh, some celebrity encounters he's had Uh, as well as we listen to some tracks that he's written, and he talks about the process of writing for TV and movies. But before we uh, sign off on this episode, I wanted to leave you with the award-winning Iowa State Fair interpretation of Chopsticks as played by Andy Johnson. Uh, And one note, uh, don't adjust those dials, because you're going to hear some clicking at the very beginning of this track, and uh, there's nothing wrong with the audio. That is Andy playing Chopsticks using Chopsticks. And when the clicking goes away, you know, he set him down, he switched to his fingers. So enjoy, and we'll see you again, or hear you again, speak to you again, (laughs) in episode two of our interview with Andrew Johnson.